Hello and welcome to the Science Shambles podcast, producer Trent here. This episode is an audio version of the video version that goes out live at 3pm British time every Sunday on our YouTube channel, a science Q&A, a different topic each week, always hosted by Robin Ince and Dr. Helen Chersky. Different guests each week. As such, bear in mind there might be a couple of moments that are more suited to the original visual format, particularly in the show and tells at the start. But that shouldn't hamper your enjoyment too much of this podcast version. And also, since it goes out live as well, everyone's on different broadband speeds, different microphones, different settings. So there might be a couple of little bits of audio dropout or echo or the random things that one encounters when doing something live over Zoom or Skype or whatever it is. You all know how finicky doing these video conferencing things can be by now. If you want to support the show, help us keep making it each week, keep making it free for everyone. You can go to patreon.com slash cosmic shambles and support us on there and get yourself various rewards and goodies and exclusives for doing so as well. And now here is this week's episode of the Science Shambles Sunday Q&A show. Hope you enjoy. Hello. Welcome to the return of Sunday Science Q&A. We've been away since we did the uh, 25-hour live show, which uh, some of you might have seen. Some of you might have seen all of it. Some of you might have seen some of it. Some of you might have been those people who were very busy uh, conversing in the chat room, which was a lovely thing to uh, see. Uh, and uh, first thing I'll tell you is that all of that is now online. Robert Smith, Jocelyn Belbonnell, uh, Tim Minchin, all, enormous number of scientists and uh, entertainers uh, that you can find all of that there. So anyway, Happy New Year or reasonable new it's happy almost feels like it's pushing it too far this year doesn't it it feels like just some basic level of occasional contentment during an afternoon will be enough but i'm going to push it for a happy new year anyway um i have a few announcements before we start today's show by the way is all going to be uh well most of it will probably be about the sky most of it the sky uh during our period of night but it will be about other things as well we've had lots of questions in thank you everyone who sent those questions um also if you have questions that come up uh during the show as this is live you can either tweet at well actually that's the best thing to do is tweet at cosmic shambles or go into the kind of uh the chat box underneath this and we will try and deal with any questions that come up in the next hour as well uh and we have a great panel uh with helen chersky who's of course uh, with us every single week and uh also this week we have uh professor lucy green and uh professor chris professor green you are a professor aren't you chris? yes no, 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 no. But I wanted to give everyone their, their titles this time. It's just that you don't dress like one of the professors that I see in the TV series uh, Endeavour or Morse, but no longer Lewis, sadly. Uh, I will um, tell you a few things, a quick couple of announcements as well about what we've got coming up. We've got a lot of stuff coming up in the uh, in the new year, uh, including a new series, which is probably going to be called Cosmic Conversation, which is a very, very kind of simple and reasonably banal title. But uh, behind that banal title, uh, uh, each week I'm going to be having uh, a conversation with predominantly scientists uh, and astronauts but also other people as well um, about finding meaning and purpose in a universe which appears to have no overall meaning and uh, I'm going to be talking to people like uh, Tim Minchin and Brian Green and Sarah Parkak and Andrean and uh, one of the first ones I'm actually going to be doing uh, we uh, have uh, well I, I'll, I'll tell you about that in, in a minute actually because I'll give you an announcement because you can actually uh, watch it live uh, so I'll tell you about that at two o'clock on uh, on Tuesday. I'll, I'll, keep, I'll tell you all about that shortly. Um, and uh, also on Tuesday night at eight o'clock, we're doing the first of a series called uh, The Reality Talks. Uh, I'm going to be talking about uh, physics, death, 
and ghosts but not necessarily in that order to be honest i'll probably leave physics to last because that really is probably one of my weakest i'm much better on death and ghosts than i am on physics and that's at eight o'clock on tuesday and uh you can uh watch that uh live uh in fact only way to watch it is live and you can get a ticket for that or if you're a patreon supporter um you get free access to it as well and i'm also going to be joined uh by a fantastic uh paranormal investigator as well and again i'll tell you more news about that shortly uh and and um, that's pretty much it to begin with. So uh, let's get started. And uh, and we're going to do show and tells as usual. Helen Chersky is going to have something different. We're not going to see it immediately. But Helen, can I just ask you, what are we going to have from you today? Um, it's 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 history with context. I think that I I don't know. I mean, I I feel we should leave it as a bit leave it as a teased thing. Although there is also a topic we might dip into a topic that comes back many times to haunt me, which is all my fault this year. And regular listeners will know what that is. But yes, that in the middle of the show. Well, basically, what's happened for those who don't know is because we've been doing these now since whatever it was uh, April, uh, and every every week it's been a show and tell. And uh, Helen doesn't have a huge flat, so she's actually run out of things in her flat to show and tell. And and uh, so we, we're having to. But our other guests, who we have not had on quite so often, uh, do have a show and tell. So uh, Chris Lintot, uh, we well, there's a lot to talk about you as well, because on the 25 hour show, we had uh, Search for a Supernova, which was very, very exciting. I really enjoyed that. And, and were you were you happy with how that went down? Yeah, we, we've, been yeah busy, we, we've been busy ever since. So we challenged the viewers to uh, go and try and find a supernova via our Supernova Hunters project. Um, and they've just kept going since the show. So since then, more than 300 potential supernovae uh, have been found by Cosmic Shambles viewers. Uh, and we've reported them all to, to the astronomers of the world and people will be following these up on the on the night, we managed to get a Type 1a supernova, which let us measure uh, the age of the universe, and we adjusted it very slightly. Um, but actually, the system works, and we, we've had people sorting through data ever since. So, so that's really pleasing and really exciting. And even on the actual, over that 25 hours, at the end of it, you said, so we do but, have but, this but, discovery. There is some sense of the changing age of the universe. That's right. These Type 1a supernovae, they're called standard candles. They always go bang with with the same brightness so you can use them to measure distance if you know the distance you can measure the speed of the expansion and so we put that one in the hopper with all the others um and there are probably a, a few there's probably about 500 to a thousand of these things that get used depending on how you pick them to measure the the speed of the expansion and, and ours is in there now um contributing to, to our knowledge of the age of the universe because some of our viewers looked on a website and found the thing and then we pointed a telescope at it uh, and did all the rest as well so for those of you who, who are watching or listening who don't know the about whole this, Zooniverse world is absolutely fantastic. Uh, Chris has written a brilliant book about it, which I highly recommend. But it is about it is that 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 term that's used, citizen science, which is you don't have to be a scientific expert. You just have to have curiosity and interest. And you can get it doesn't it isn't just about astronomy. It is about so many different areas of scientific research. And it really will give you a kick, I think, for a lot of people to get involved, to just feel I'm part of something. I'm part of trying to understand the universe. It's such a delightful project i think yeah that's why we, i think we've been been really busy during the pandemic because people who have had time have wanted to feel part of something and it, it is somewhat magical that you could go to to a website and in five minutes contribute to finding i don't know a planet around another star or or counting penguins in the antarctic or whatever it is so so i think you we do you do need about five minutes to to, to chip in but if you've got that you can can navigate your web browser over to zooniverse.org and 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 contribute with everyone else 
Can I just check, by the way? So the age of you is uh, I remember the first books that I, I read was about 13.7 billion, 13.8 billion. What would you generally say in terms of the age of the universe? I would say it's creeping up towards 14 billion is our best guess uh, at the minute. But there's this discrepancy. So what co cosmologists, cosmologists who study the universe as a whole are strange people. Um, and they like to, to disagree, but they're very careful about how they describe their disagreements. So at the minute, the people who study the early universe and work out how old it is, uh, are disagreeing with the people who look at the supernovae that we discovered and use them to work out how old it is. So there's a slight difference between them, but they call it a tension in our understanding of the universe. So one of the big things that I think will happen scientifically this year and next is there will be this tension resolving itself as we get new observations. And then we'll then I'll be able to give you a better answer, maybe with, with as many as, as two decimal points, uh, two numbers after the decimal point, and we'll, we'll know the age of the universe. But one of the remarkable things is that we know the age of the universe more accurately than we know the age of the Earth. And when you tell people that, they, they sort of don't believe you, but it's true. The error bar on the age of the Earth is, is larger. And that's not because astronomers are better than geologists. Um, although some may say that was true. It's because the universe as a whole is simpler than the Earth. If you want to understand the universe as a whole, oh, it's we just have physics. that official. It's been said. Yeah, sure. All we the do the easy stuff, who, All the people who think that astronomy is, all the astronomers are the clever people and all the Earth scientists are just messing about in the mud. He just said it. Did you hear that? He it's just true. Said it. No, 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 no. We, we picked the easiest problems, especially cosmology, where all you care about is the grand picture. You can write down all the equations you need on the back of a medium-sized envelope. To understand the Earth, you've got to worry about chemistry, you've got to worry about the geological processes. It's all very messy and, and frankly, not that beautiful, whereas cosmology is this beautiful oh. picture that will just, you know, that, that's very simple. But it means that we can have this remarkable precision uh, about what seem like the biggest questions of all. I'll help Helen with this, by the way, just so so he's saying beauty now. But I interviewed Chris a while ago where he said the problem with the universe is I've realized that it might be very, very boring uh, because it turns out one patch of universe is exactly another the patch of universe. Whereas, of course, as you know, and in one patch of, of, of some undersea murk, all the variety in it. So there there that, that well, we haven't got time to talk about that. We'll come, <laughs> I'm going to come back to you for your show and tell because I want to bring in Lucy as well, uh, just because another question that comes up from the uh, the 25 hour show was all about the uh, solar orbiter slingshot uh, that you spoke about uh, with nine, nine lessons. So what is the next stage is something that Kendall would like to know. Yeah, yeah. so um, the solar orbiter slingshot around Venus happened on the 27th of December last year. And its role was to start to take the spacecraft to get closer to the sun than it currently is. And it's already you know, very close to the sun. So we've had pictures of the sun taken from half of the Sun-Earth distance, but that's not good enough for us. We want to go further. So in the coming months, the spacecraft is gathering some data about the environment about it, but it actually doesn't start its proper sort of science phase um, until the end of this year now. And that's because we want the spacecraft to be in the right part of its orbit. So there are future slingshots coming up that will over time, in fact, over the next few years, take the spacecraft closer and closer to the sun, but also will move the spacecraft from being in an orbit that's in the same plane as the planet. So, you know, it's launched from Earth, so obviously it picks up the characteristics of Earth's orbit, and we want to move the spacecraft's orbit out of that plane. So we can start to see the top and the bottom, the poles of the sun, which we've never seen properly actually ever, ever, ever in our, you know, 
six decades of space exploration, hundreds of years of telescopic observations of the sun. We've never seen the poles. And that might sound kind of trivial, but actually there's a lot of interesting information that we're missing because we can't see the poles. And for me, it all comes down to magnetism. So people who see me talk about the sun know I always obsess about magnetism. And magnetism is what gives the sun its character, it makes it you know, variable, produces explosions, eruptions. And the way the magnetism sort of evolves on the sun can only really fully be understood if we can see what the magnetic fields at the poles at the top and bottom are doing. And we've never been able to measure those fields before. So, yeah, so the, what's coming up next is a sort of a bit more of the same in the sense, continuing to get closer in and then coming out of the orbit, uh, the plane of the orbits of the planets as well. See, that's always so interesting when you suddenly say of the sun because we're so used to thinking about the poles of the earth and i think very often we, do, we don't think about that uh for um other kind of uh, celestial bodies yeah and it's been i think the case across the solar system that when you look at the polar regions it's always like oh my word we didn't expect that so i remember when um venus express went to venus and one of the poles so at venus you've got these really fast winds that whip around the planet and it's got a really dense atmosphere, carbon dioxide rich atmosphere. And so a vortex at the poles was expected because of these fast winds. And I remember at one of the poles, I forget which one it was, a double vortex was discovered. And I was like, oh, wow, totally exciting. You know, let's think about the physics of what's happening in the atmosphere of Venus. Now we've discovered from, um, from this double vortex. And then at was it Jupiter? I think it was Jupiter. Chris White, correct me if I've misremembered here, with the kind of hexagonal polar um, uh, Saturn. Saturn, Saturn. Ooh. Thank you. <laughs> so the hexagonal patterns in the flows at Saturn were a surprise as well. So I think, you know, polar regions of objects are really interesting and they and you can't get that complete picture of, of the body and until you've got that, you know, completely global coverage. And so for me, I'm being able to measure and characterize the magnetic fields at the poles of the sun is it would be a massive step for us, It'd be a massive step for science. And it would also be a big step for this area of um, space weather, where we want to understand how the magnetic activity of the sun ultimately affects us here on the Earth. And we make models of the sun's magnetic field, but they're driven by data. And the models are incomplete because we don't have any measurements of the magnetic fields at, at the poles. And once we get that, even just with the snapshots of solar orbiter, that will help us understand the sun much more. Brilliant. I'm going to uh, just I'm going to come back to you for your a moment. I've just got, I've got one thing for Helen, which is uh, being sent into us, which is uh, an article from five years ago in Vice, uh, which was apparently trending on the front page of Reddit yesterday. So I'm sure you probably know about this, Helen, because it's in one of your specialist areas. Uh, and uh, the title uh, was a whale blasted an ungodly amount of arse ham all over some divers. The whale flipped onto its side and started spinning in circles while engulfing the divers in excrement, creating what one of the divers called a poo-nado and uh, lots of people have sent this uh, to us and they want to get Helen's uh, basically your take on it uh, so um, what is your take on what was going on in that situation it's always nice it's always nice you know what people associate with you long long ago when I was a college student at college I did I was environment officer of the college and one day some people found a wheelie bin in a pond they fished it out of the pond they brought it to me and said oh we found this and we thought of you because of the recycling but what I heard was we fished something out of a pond and we thought of you <laughs> and I actually could make use of it but anyway so yeah so this so this article um 
so it was it is five years old it apparently this hasn't been observed since what happened what? was a bunch of divers who were professional photographers were diving with whales in order to take very nice pictures of them and one of the whales um well we don't know what it thought about it but what it did was sort of spin around in circles and very deliberately generate a cloud of poo and one of the things about whale poo as we have discussed is that it it's not necessarily a nice little lumps although it can happen like that it's more it's very fluid shall we say it can make a gigantic mess so what happened was that the whale spun around and made quite deliberately it seems a gigantic poo mess around these divers and then cleared off and um so i had a nose around and this was five it was five years ago there's been no other reports that i can find since a similar thing happened. the question was is this deliberate behavior is this a whale deciding that it doesn't like you it's a bit fed up of these humans it wants to make them go away and it decides it's going to poo all over them to make it happen or did it just have a bit of a bout of diarrhea you know spin around a bit while it was doing it and then clear off. And and there doesn't seem, from the time I've had to research it, there doesn't seem to be an answer. The, the has, this behaviour hasn't been filmed since. It, it, whales are intelligent creatures. There is no way that they are not aware of the consequences of their poo. For, for a start, they will notice if they swim through another whale's cloud of poo. So so we don't, I, I think the jury's out on whether it's deliberate behaviour. It wouldn't surprise me if the whale was just mucking around, literally. Um so, but it doesn't seem to be considered a known defensive tactic, although whales are intelligent and perhaps they use it occasionally. But, you know, they're, they're clever, right? They live in three dimensions. It wouldn't, it wouldn't surprise anyone if it was deliberate or at least deliberately annoying. Or maybe it thought it was playing. Maybe it was like, oh, I've got a toy. Come play with me. So we don't know. The jury's out. I was just going to say, Robert, this is an example of the kind of difficult problem that cosmologists rarely have to deal with. Yeah, I would. I, yeah, the you mean you have to poo Nebula yet? Come on. Uh, I'm sure somebody's named one, but we galaxies move slowly, and as far as we know, don't excrete, so we're we're good. Yeah, the nearest you get is it was it not Velikovsky? I'm trying to remember who it was who you know the pooing out of one planet from another. I suppose could some way in a Freudian perspective, but we'll deal with that another time. But we will keep you up to date, everyone watching throughout 2021 uh, about our increased understanding of poonados, and it does give me a chance also to uh, remind everyone uh, that you really must see Helen's Christmas lecture. Uh, it was fantastic. Very little of it was about uh, well, I think about 38 minutes in there was a little bit about whale poo, uh, but it was a really brilliant lecture. Afterwards, my dad just went. I, I watched it with my dad, and he went, "She's very good." isn't she so uh and he was entirely right um let's start off with lucy what have you got for your show and tell for us yeah, yeah so i've i've picked something um quite small which is um a, a medallion so it's got nasa on one side and on the other side it's got a relief of the international space station flying around the earth and um the inscription on it reads if i can, if i can read it it's very small this medallion contains metal flown to the International Space Station. So I, I rather like this. Don't ask me what the metal was that flew to the space station. I don't know. But it was given to me by um, Charlie Bolden, who some people may be, may be familiar with. So he was NASA administrator um, for about eight years. And I thought he was a brilliant, brilliant um, in inspiration 
for a lot of people who um, who, who are interested in space science. And, um, and, and the administrator, Charlie Bolden, sort of has another link to me. So he gave me this, but we also had a chance to get him to a school that I'm heavily involved in. And this is the UCL Academy in, in London. It's a secondary school. And we have a you know, high number of disadvantaged students in the school. It's a very ethnically diverse area in London. And, um, and, I, and, I, and so I got an opportunity to bring him to the school. So I emailed the head teacher and said, oh, hey, the NASA administrator wants to come and visit. You know, let's set this up. And she said, well, I don't think the administrator is really the best person to come along. I was like, no, no, no. The NASA administrator is the person who runs NASA. You know, he was he was a four-time shuttle pilot, um, so you know, distinguished astronaut. He was the first black administrator, brilliant person. So after we got over that misunderstanding, we did get him into the school. Um, but obviously the space station was a big um part of his career. And so that alongside the fact that we've just celebrated 20 years of continual living and working, having human presence in space because of the International Space Station, made me want to select this as my kind of show and tell object. Even though it looks quite small, it, I think it's of huge significance in terms of what it represents for human ingenuity, achievement, um, you know, and all the messages of working together that we need at the moment. So I think that's rather special. I think it's such an interesting thing, isn't it, that however theoretical anyone's work is uh, and however theoretical an idea seems to have something tangible to be able to touch like you know in a few weeks we're doing stuff on geology and you know but anything I think that that sense of an object that has had a journey or an object in which we know part of its story I think that's such an in, in, important part of it however many equations will justify so in, in the same way that I remember talking to Jocelyn Bell Burnell about you know the the first uh, proper photograph of a black hole and to her it means very very little because she's known they exist she's been working on them for decades and decades but for an enormous number of people wherever they've read about black holes to have that first photographic image is again it feels it, it's something tangible beyond our imagination yeah, and I'm very into the tangible, definitely. And so, you know, the place I work at UCL, which is a space lab, so, so there's people like me who are working on the data, collecting data, analysing data, but I'm also trying to be an advocate for the, the, the hardware, the tangible, and we would call it our material culture. So the things that you can touch and feel that have stories associated with them, that people, you know, imagined and made real and worked on and built and went into space and and survived in those amazingly harsh conditions are are really important and i think we shouldn't forget that side of space science and space exploration and i'm i'm very keen that we then preserve that material culture for future generations and that's why i'm interested in working with organizations like the science museum because they they allow us to collect those resources and tell the stories of those resources um, and and you know and 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 they can be also what connect to people and speak to people and I also I often think it's kind of a shame that the amazing pictures are often what's always talked about but behind the scenes you know there are the things made of metal and and what other other materials you know that have been built and have gone into space that have enabled us to get the knowledge that, that we've gained 
But there's Is actually a bigger, oh, there's a bigger thing there. Sorry, just quickly because it was one of my beads in my bonnet about physics. So, so I, the reason I did all I passed all my exams, exams in quantum, quantum physics, physics and cosmology, and I chose to do solid state physics because I could touch it and play with it. And I found it very hard. It, like in a lot of years after that, you know, we all talk about science a lot. People say, "Oh, I'm not interested in physics," and you go, "No, no, no. What you're not interested in is the thing you hear about, which is stars and planets and things that are far away that you can't touch, you can't have a tangible relationship with." And actually, if you talk to them about the physics of the everyday world, they are interested. And so I've got this proper bee in my bonnet that we've actually labelled these subjects as this is for you if you're if you're happy to live with less tangible connection and you're happy to think about big ideas. But for the people who want to play with it, it's not that they're not interested in science. It's just that they want to see a physical thing that they can touch and play with. And I feel that they're left out because we've had such a sort of strong cultural. This is physics. It's stars. It's far away. It's weird quantum stuff. Thou shalt not play with it. Yeah, it, you know, it's over there. And actually, there's lo far, far more physics, as Chris said, you know, all this complicated stuff that is stuff you can touch and play with. And actually, so I shan't rant on. But, you know, I really that that matters. those people I, do like science. It's yeah. just they don't like the science they've been shown because they want to touch it. That's why I think you that know, phrase. Chris. Sorry, Robin, go on. No, 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 you, Chris. Well, I was going to say, but, but even, even, in, even, in, even in, in astronomy, I agree with everything you've just said, Helen. But even in astronomy, there's sort of the material culture of like going to the observatories of, of building instruments and, and, and so on. We've had during lockdown in our building, the happiest people in Oxford have been the team building an instrument called Weave, which is heading to the Canary Islands. It's got these long fiber optic cables, hundreds of them that, that will each take light from an individual star or galaxy. And they've been able to get up, really get on with building their instrument because they could use the long corridors of our building to lay out their fiber optics because uh, they knew no one else would be in there. Um, and, and so that it really is this, this sort of culture of being there. I started as an astrochemist because I liked the idea of working with people who were in the lab down the hall who were trying to replicate the conditions that I was seeing with a telescope. So even the intangible subjects have, have this sort of materialness to them as well. Yeah, they do. It's all happening. And it's, I think, us to talk about it, um, you know, to convey that there are all these different aspects. And so I've sort of taken it, in, I've tried to change my mindset over recent years to make sure I talk about the stuff that you can physically hold and the people and the fun and and, and the playfulness that goes in into um, making a space mission happen. I always think things like, I know Buckminster Fuller popularised the phrase, but it might not initially be him, but spaceship Earth, that sense that we are not stuck and not move, that we are moving. And all of those people, you know, those wonderful explanations of where different elements come from and the air, you know, the, 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 the rare and element, the processes required in the stars, all of those things, I think, are great for creating some kind of sense of the tangible. Um, I'm going to ask you, actually, Chris, before I get to your show and tell, because you were just talking about that journey to the observatory, Brianna wanted to know uh, what do you think will fill the gap left by Arecibo? Well, hopefully Arecibo too. So, so people will know that the well, great no. Are, the great Arecibo Observatory um, collapsed rather catastrophically just at the end end of the year. Um, and we have other big radio telescopes, uh, in particular the Chinese have a have a new single dish, and, and people are building many things. But Arecibo was uh, unique in that it could do radar as well, so it, you could actually transmit 
with that uh, observatory. And they use that to do things like look at the shape of near-Earth asteroids. So you can bounce uh, radio waves off bits of the solar system and get information you can't get any other way. I'm reasonably hopeful that the Americans will uh, invest in Puerto Rico, which is where it is, uh, and build, build an, another telescope. There's certainly... Uh, a lot of use for big single dish radio telescopes. Most of the modern radio telescopes we're building, uh, like something called the square kilometer array, these are uh, arrays of many smaller dishes that you add together to give you the power uh, of a large dish. But sometimes you just need the Jodrell Banks, the Arecibos of the world, the, the big single dish. And with new instruments, that could be a, a remarkable facility. And I, I think that will happen. Um, Lucy, we've just had a question in, from uh, ZapFan. This is a live question, uh, which I have now, to now do this because I'm very old. I have to roll <laughs> my glasses and work out where the light's right. Uh, what did the Ulysses spacecraft tell us about the poles of the sun? Oh, yeah. Ulysses, amazing, amazing mission um, that flew over the poles of the sun. So I was talking about that for Solar Orbiter. And, and, and I said, we've never seen the soles of the uh, Souls of the sun, uh, the pole. That's a different program. The poles of the sun. Before. We're just going to take that bit though, and because so, I think that could woo in some of the people that we were hoping to build a cult around this, because I've heard there's a lot of money in cults, and the soul of the sun I think is a good starting point. Be ready to be a priestess. <laughs> I could make some money that way. Um, so, so the poles of the sun we've never seen with images, but we have flown over with the Ulysses spacecraft, and Ulysses then measured the outflowing magnetized plasma from the poles of the sun and Ulysses flew for I think it made three passes over the poles over a couple of decades um, and it, it allowed us to measure the material coming away from the sun from those regions so we could get the magnetic field information because it's a magnetized plasma we could get say the velocity of the plasma and because it did three passes separated by about 10 years we were able then to see how these outflows changed over time and um, over the solar cycle in fact and so in these data sets Ulysses showed us how the magnetic field of the sun kind of pulses and changes in strength and complexity and how these these streams of wind from the sun um, go from being not very complex at the minimum of the cycle to being very complex at the maximum of the cycle. So this Ulysses was an amazingly important mission and Solar Orbiter will build on what Ulysses showed us. Brilliant. Thank you very much. Thank you for that question, Zapfan, as well. Uh, a quick question for you, Helen, which is from Melanie. Uh, Melanie just wants to say that her whole family and absolutely, absolutely uh, loved all of the Christmas lectures. And I was intrigued, uh, intrigued to know that you mentioned on Twitter there was so much that you wanted to cover but had to skip uh, because of time and just wondered if you could tell us a couple of the things that you would most wish you could have squeezed into that Christmas lecture. All of the rest of, the, rest ocean. of the ocean. But I'm writing a book about that. Well, I will be once the teaching admin associated with COVID has gone away. The two biggest topics that I didn't include that I do feel guilty about, but I squeeze, you know, I put as much in an hour as I could are the poles and the deep ocean. So the poles of the planet, especially the Arctic, because that is actually an ocean, um, is a massive part of the system. In the same way that Lucy was saying the poles of the sun are important. Um, the poles of Earth are really interesting because one is an ocean surrounded by land and the other is land surrounded by an ocean. But the ocean in those areas is really fantastically important it feeds everything else basically because of the temperature difference stuff stuff temperature and buoyancy as i showed in the lecture you know buoyancy makes things move in the ocean so the poles are really important kind of feeders and the arctic ocean also it doesn't directly connect in the sense of it 
helping things travel across between the Pacific and the Atlantic, but it feeds down through the Bering Straits and through uh, around Greenland. So it's kind of feeding down on the two sides of the planet. So the poles, like not including polar oceans, is something I feel fantastically guilty about, but I can't do anything about it. It's going to be in the book. Let it go. Um, and the other thing is the deep ocean, because and it's weird. And the reason I didn't want to talk about the deep ocean is because we have such a limited sort of you know general view of the ocean if you ask people what's in the sea they'll say fish they'll say there's some weird stuff at the bottom there's some black smokers and then the rest of it's kind of empty and so so i chose not to include the deep sea because it's already been seen a little bit all the interesting stuff that's happening in the middle people don't talk about so um the deep sea itself is important for the engine on top of it. It's not just a place where, you know, bits fall down and pile up and then they sort of accumulate there until they get shunted into the continents. Um, it's actually important for ocean mixing and how temperature, there's these, like it's really hard to talk about without diagrams, but the way, so water in the ocean tends not to mix. It's too big. These layers, like when you pour water in the bath, sometimes you can feel it's warmer at one end for a bit before the warmth gets to the other end. So even your bath, something the size of your bath doesn't mix perfectly because those two ends stay quite separate until you start mixing the bubble bath in or whatever. Um, so in the ocean, water masses don't mix, but there are shapes in the deep ocean where the ocean, for example, if it's flowing sideways very slowly and it passes over a seamount or over a bumpy area where it sort of generates turbulence and you get this region of mixing. And actually that's really important for how the engine of the ocean works and how heat is transferred around the ocean. So so I think leaving out the deep sea and all the, you know, the, like the, I think we had it when uh, Helen Scales joined us a few weeks ago and she said, you know, there are, there's a limit below which fish can't live because the pressure is so great that they would basically poison themselves give themselves oxygen poisoning because their bodies you know the they would at that pressure for them to have enough oxygen it would also be poisoning them because of how easily it would move into their tissues so um yes the poles in the deep ocean were the two biggest things that i feel guilty about but there are quite a lot of others as well the 25 hour show you can have at least half of it so uh hopefully you can cover that uh chris i'm going to go into your show and tell but just before that uh caroline wonders if you could help her daughter find the constellation leo in the night sky sure so uh leo is actually quite distinct quite distinctive once you've got your head around it so it's supposed to be a lion but the thing to look for is a backwards question mark it's sometimes called the sickle so the bright star regulus is at the bottom and then there's a backwards question mark, which is sort of like it's supposed to be uh, the head of the lion. But think of it as the tail of a mouse and you'll be there. So there's a, a backwards question mark and then a triangle. At the minute, it's rising around midnight in the east. But if you wait a few months, it's a, it's a sort of late spring evening constellation. Uh, look east, look for the backwards question mark and, and you should find it from there. Brilliant. And let's have a look at your show and tell then. Yeah, well, it's actually linked to what we were talking. We were talking about touching and, and tangibility. And I was talking to somebody over New Year about the fact that there's no astronomical significance of 1st of January whatsoever. Uh, we have the winter solstice, which is astronomical. But 1st of January is just an arbitrary date to astronomers. Um, and then we got talking about the galactic year. So you're talking about the Earth moving through space course, the sun moves too. And, and we take about 240 million years to orbit the center of the Milky Way. And so 240 million years is a galactic year. And I started wondering like, how one could experience that. You don't exactly wait between 
galactic New Year parties. Um, so I looked for old things I had in the house. And, and this is actually what I, I came up with. So this is a chunk of rock from Lyme Regis uh, uh, on the south coast with an ammonite, which you can see. This is where Mary Anning and co did her collecting. I picked this one up off the beach a few years ago, but this is from the Jurassic. So this is about 180 million years old. Um, and so this, I'm now holding something that's three quarters of a galactic year old. And that is in itself a little less than 1% of the universe uh, in terms of age. So that's the scale. Um, we, we're talking about 14 billion years of cosmic history. And of, we've had near, just over 100 galactic years. And almost one ago, the south coast of England was a warm sea with pliosaurs and ammonites and all the rest. And we can touch that. Um, so that's as close as you get to being able to feel cosmological time. That's brilliant. You mentioned Mary Anning. There is a campaign at the moment to get a statue of, uh, for her. And uh, go, go on, uh, have a look at it, because they're getting very, very close, I think, to their target. So uh, I forget the actual name of the campaign, but if you put in Mary Anning statue, it won't be long before you find uh, the, the correct site. And uh, just so the quick mention as well before, uh, talking of metal that's been to the ISS, uh, I was saying there's something coming up. Uh, 2 p.m. on Tuesday afternoon for all Patreon supporters, I'm going to be talking to Nicole Stott, who uh, is an ISS astronaut uh, and now does really interesting work with other astronauts as well about using art to engage people uh, in ideas of space exploration and uh, she's been on Infinite Monkey she was on the last one that we did with uh, uh, I was gonna, with a bunch of astronauts and uh, and and she's great she's such a I interviewed her a while ago for the book that I'm working on and she's always so interesting but if, you, if you're a Patreon supporter you can watch the, the actual the live conversation that we're doing at 2 o'clock uh, on Tuesday afternoon that's 2 o'clock GMT in case you're watching anywhere else in the world uh, Helen I'm going to come over to you in a moment but i've got one more question that uh, barry would like to know lucy uh um uh would like to know, uh, if you took the week off after coming up with uh, the closing of your nested loops can you tell us a little bit about this <laughs> oh this is someone who uh, is very astute and perhaps follows me or my other half matt parker on twitter so over christmas um i mean <laughs> It was Christmas holiday, but we had a day where we both found ourselves doing some coding. So I use a piece of software called IDL. Matt was coding, coding in Python. And just in, you know, in the evening over a glass of wine, we were talking about how our coding had been going in the day. And we were talking about nested loops. And, uh, and I don't know, we just got talking. And so if you've got a loop within a loop on that particular day. So my first loop was, you know, do something from I equals zero to nine, do this thing. And then within that loop, I had another loop, which was, and I called it from I, I equals zero to nine, do this thing, for example. Whereas Matt was like, no, no, no. I don't know if I've lost most people by now. My first loop is I, and my loop within the loop is J. And he tweeted about it and uh, got a lot of, lot of opinions, shall we say, about how you should name your loops within loops. And it even appeared on Reddit as well. So it's just this, this thing that, you know, this little conversation we were having over a glass of wine um, kind of blew up. So um, I've even forgotten the question now. <laughs> so what was the consensus? Because I, I was really interested in this because I think like a lot of people, I'm basically like I do a lot of coding, but I'm basically self-taught right a lot of what I do I had to look up at some point and then I kind of worked out how I was going to apply it for me so so I use IX and IXX and IX this is a labeling convention but I've never I don't know where that came from is there a proper way to do this like I mean what, wow. what do you find out yeah so, 
a lot of people would say, like they said, I was taught to do it such and such way. But I'm like you, Helen. I just taught myself. So, you know, we did some stuff at school, but I cannot remember that. And I don't think we did much at university. So it's basically, you know, the classic in, in research, in, in academic research, you have to figure out how to do it yourself. So my convention just comes from one that I find intuitive. Um, and I didn't get a sense of there being any particular accepted convention. So everybody had their own opinions and their own ways of doing it, which I guess was nice because um, it just goes to show you, you you do what works. And there is a kind of you know logic and, and a way of programming. But ultimately, you do what works for you and, and what's intuitive for you, So which I kind of like. I mean, it was it was hilarious. It really was. <laughs> of all the things that you can have Twitter spout, spats against, I feel that's one of the more positive when I see what's been going on over the last week. Uh, the next question is from uh, S. Weber, who would like to know, and this is something I, I, I as you know nothing about, uh, one of the criteria for a planet is that it's cleared its orbit of debris. So why is Jupiter a planet with its Trojan asteroids, Chris? Uh, well, this is all. Uh, well, do... this is all to do with when we were all upset about Pluto and whether Pluto should be a planet. And um, it's not a planet. Let's be clear. Um, it's a dwarf planet, and it's very happy. And that doesn't make it less interesting than if it were a planet. But um, the criteria they came up with is that you have to orbit a star. You have to be um, round which is actually a constraint on size because because once you get above or mass rather once you get above a certain mass the gravity will force you to be roughly round um and then um, there was this extra criteria tacked on which said you have to have cleared its orbit or rather the way that's interpreted is that you sort of have to be clearly the most important thing in your your orbit so pluto's orbit crosses neptune there are also a whole bunch of other things out in the Kuiper belt. And that's really where the problem is, because the logical positions are either that we have eight planets in the solar system, because there are eight things that are, are obviously distinct on these and other criteria, or you have to have about 200. Um, and both of those are perfectly logical, but we didn't fancy learning 200 names. But the, the Jupiter Trojans are, are fascinating. So these are um, asteroids that orbit the sun, but they're ru in roughly the same orbit as Jupiter. And a bunch of them precede Jupiter around its orbit, and a bunch of them follow. And there are those two places where there are stable clouds of asteroids. And we don't know much about them, but we think they're captured into those orbits because they've been particularly unlucky. But they may contain, it's sort of like looking behind the sofa. Uh, you find the debris that tells you about what's happened in your house over the last, uh, let's go with years, shall we? It depends on, on the house. The Trojan asteroids uh, preserve the history of the solar system. And there's a mission called Lucy, um, which is being launched later this year with any luck, which is going to go on this long tour of the solar system. And it's going to dive through the clouds of, of Jupiter Trojans uh, and observe them up close for the first time. So they're fascinating things. But to clear your orbit, you don't have to have absolutely nothing there. It's just that you have to be obviously the largest thing, and then then you can be a planet. How wonderful to know about a planet, Ron. What an ego. I always thought Jupiter. <laughs> can you just mentioning dwarf planets? This is something. Not over, how many do we believe are in the solar system now, approximately? What's what's the, the rough estimation? Uh, if well, of dwarf planets, so things that meet all of this criteria. I think there. Are, I think there are four or five that we know meet those criteria. There are probably a couple of hundred in the Kuiper Belt, and we're still discovering them. The difficult bit is that because we've set the rules so that they have to be round. 
when you have something on the outer solar system and it appears as a point of light, it's quite difficult uh, to study it in enough detail to check what its mass is and, and, and what, what it would look like. But there, there are probably at least a couple of hundred things roughly the size of Pluto in the Kuiper Belt. Brilliant. And uh, Lucy, one for you, for based on the tweet someone saw now. By the way, we've got 20 minutes left. I'm going to try and get through all these questions. I'm going to try very, very hard. One of them is about milk frothing, uh, Helen. I reckon there's no way we're going to fit that one in, but we, we can always follow that up next week. But uh, Lucy, uh, this was a question about uh, Room 715 saw you mentioning flux ropes and says, uh, try to do some Googling, uh, but quickly got out of my depth i wonder if you might be able to give a simple explanation of what a flux rope is yes oh it warms my heart to know people are thinking about flux ropes because this is um a sort of magnetic field configuration that i study in my research so i'm coming back to magnetic fields again so if you imagine um magnetic field shapes and we can use the concept brought in by Michael Faraday to say that if you have a if you have a magnet with a north pole and a south pole, a magnetic field line going from north to south makes an arch between those two poles. And in the sun's atmosphere, we have lots of those those magnets around the surface of the sun, say, with arched field lines going from one to the other. So if you look at any images of the sun's atmosphere, you'll see plasma emission structures tracing out those fields, and you'll see they look like arches. But in a magnetic flux rope, it's as if you took a bundle of arches and, and twisted them so that they then are helical. So it's like having a rope, a piece of rope that's got a helical structure. So a magnetic flux rope is a twisted bundle of magnetic field lines. And they're important because they store energy, they produce eruptions and so on. But a flux rope is a twisted bundle of field lines. Great question. Brilliant. Thank you very much. And uh, uh, this, one, this one for you, Helen. Uh, Terry would like to know, Carl Sagan said we're all made of star stuff and you said we're all made of poo. Which is it? <laughs> uh, so, of course, we, it, it, it can be both. And from this as well, if you'd also like to go in and uh, and uh, I know you've got a little bit about the, the history of science you'd like to talk about. So let me hand over to you. Well, that depends on time scale. As with many things in science, you have to define your frame of reference. So on, on scales of, uh, you know, possibly up to the age of the earth, probably. Ultimately, we're all made of poo in the sense that we're all made of the waste of something that was something else before. Um, and so so when I was talking about poo, I was mostly talking about the organic world, even though inorganic things go round and round as well. So so on human timescales, I would say we are all made of poo. Um, ultimately, the poo's had to come from somewhere. It's like poo's all the way back, right? The poo thing was made from the poo, which was made from the other thing, which was made from the thing before. So ultimately, it's like turtles all the way down. It's poo all the way back until you get to the atoms that made up not just the first living things but our planet and that's when you get back into Carl Sagan and the stardust and so so I, I guess and I was using the word poo rather loosely to imply something that was something else before so in, in our organic world yes um, it is quite literally poo generally that goes round and round but um, we are also made of stardust but obviously that you can't imagine Carl Sagan's voice can you you know looking out over the the, the starry the the galaxy view mm. talking about poo it's not his kind of word really is it so they are both true um, but ultimately the poo all the way back starts in stardust stardust so then uh, my other so I did my little bit of history. So as Robin said, we are running. I have I have quite I'm lucky in that I've got a lot of interesting things in my flat. But I, th I feel I've shown everyone the best ones now. So this year, what I'm going to do is or this, you know, however long we're going on for is um, 
a bit of history that happened this week. And actually this week I picked something that happened on January the 10th in 1947 because it's very relevant to what's going on at the moment. And it was the isolation of the polio virus. And the reason I pick up on it, that was when it was announced, is that there wasn't an effective vaccine. That, so that was in 1947, no effective vaccine until 1955. And that was with a virus that was very simple to isolate. The, the mechanism of making the vaccine was quite well known. You know, it was developed in uh, rats, I think, and, and developed on. And so, and the reason I mention that as a piece of history is firstly, like we we don't, none of us know anyone with polio, right? It has almost vanished and it almost vanished I think there were like 300 cases last year. It vanished because of vaccination. And the other thing is that just to go to the sort of serious COVID stuff is that it blows my mind that a vaccine is available so quickly and can be scaled up. Like when you talk about like whatever you think of government competence or incompetence, um, the, the, the idea that within a year, the scientific enterprise has not just developed the vaccine, it has made millions of doses of it and has got them to people like the scale of that achievement is just we cannot take that for granted it's mind-blowing that is a civilization scale achievement that has never been possible in history so so my little thing about 1947 and the polio vaccine was is just because it was a special moment but just to appreciate how quickly things have happened this year and how the idea of scaling that up, because it took decades to vaccinate enough people to make polio go away, absolutely decades. And, you know, so it's more, it's a reflection on what's happening at the moment, because however much we all want these vaccines to be available faster, the fact that they are, there are millions of doses at all, the logistics and the science and the engineering is just astonishing. And it was people that made it happen. And so, yeah. That's my thing this week. Thank you. And I should say, uh, I, I think we'll probably need to do q and A uh, Q&A at some point, which uh, we normally do is separate to this, and uh, depending on Trent's availability and stuff like that as well. I think maybe on a Sunday night. So if there's any particular, not really questions, but if there's also any particular uh, areas of expertise that you would like us to try and uh, focus on, we'll try and put together uh, the best panel possible just before Christmas during the uh, 25 hour show. Uh, we had uh, a, a great panel, which in, in included uh, was M Emma Hodcroft and Dan Davis and Kevin Fong, who's actually been been dealing day to day in the hospital situation with what is going on and uh if you get a chance that's on the genetics unzipped uh website and it's also on youtube somewhere i can't remember actually what tag it's got there but it's got a panel uh with all of those people on and kevin in particular as, as someone who has been working for so long within the hospitals and is like so many health workers that you might know as well not merely having to deal uh with something with an incredible amount of pressure a great deal uh of of of, of jeopardy and anxiety but on top of that as well is having to deal with uh, people uh, ab abusing and uh, asking what is actually going on in the hospitals. And uh, so I do hope that all of you have found good sources to find out what is really going on, because there's a great deal of uh, irresponsibility going on about uh, COVID-19 and what some of the things we're seeing on social media and uh, in the popular press where irresponsibility is dressed up as some... Uh, idea of uh, free speech but do do if you get a chance listen to that genetics uh, unzipped um now let's get on to uh sun now i'm going to start with you on on this lucy this is uh, from carol uh in david attenborough's new series he said that almost every spot on earth receives the same amount of sunlight as any other place every year and carol base says really and i presume this uh ignores the poles so how true is that 
yeah Yeah, I I guess I probably wouldn't describe it that way so because if you imagine your kind of lighthouse beam of light coming coming from the sun to the earth um what's falling on not necessarily the equator but the bit of the earth that's kind of um sticking out most it's hard to do with I've you. got a hang on have you got have you got an earth she's fallen over a globe a terrible January globe accident yeah sphere so we've what we've got is lines coming hitting the so if you talk about the equator Lucy yeah yeah so so that so the middle bit of the earth receives some, kind of like the full brunt of sunlight but as you go to a higher latitude say that same amount of sunlight beam that's coming in spreads over a larger area so the energy is more spread out. So the flux of light is different depending on where you are on the Earth. It's higher. At, so at the, the difference, I actually do know the numbers. So so I think coming from the sun at the radius of Earth, it's at 1,343-ish watts per square metre. And the average for every metre on the surface is 343. But as you said, the poles, that goes to zero. Yeah. So, um, yes. And also there's clouds. You know, some places in the world are more cloudy than others. Um, and so, yes, it does sound like quite a lot of a simplification. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah. which which may be fine you know I simplify all the time in astrophysics and I round up numbers to the nearest whatever order of magnitude I'm interested in at that point in time so we forgive him for doing that but it's it's always more complicated than that isn't it <laughs> well I always think that's one of the important things with with so much kind of science broadcasting so is to remind people that this is a start an idea particularly interesting don't immediately just go oh that's entirely true there are so many ways that you can access very knowledgeable people and you can go oh i see this is kind of this this as you said this 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 is a broad idea but you can investigate it more and that that's the thing is is be active with the information that you're given as much as possible if it's something that really fascinates you but Um, it's also the case that it as if it was stated as she said if that was the exact wording it was incorrect and it was a mistake and it shouldn't have been broadcast i mean it is the job of science broadcasters not to broadcast stuff which is too simple so yeah that's true as well i do you uh, know because it's not a verbatim thing i uh and i haven't seen the show i can't i can't be certain on that um the uh before you know it we'll get back to the aquatic ape hypothesis and we remember (laughs) how much trouble there was there when david attenborough did the radio show about that um i still enjoy the aquatic ape hypothesis it gives me all manner of strange dreams and nightmares uh chris this is from jillian who would like to know will the james webb telescope primarily be collecting data or will we get epic new pictures from it too like uh, I'll get to that in a second. If you don't, don't know, Robin, about the space ape hypothesis, space you should go and hypothesis. You should go and look that up because it's a equivalent of the aquatic ape hypothesis, which explains why we clearly evolved in space. I think probably written with tongue in cheek, but you'll enjoy that. On James Webb, no, James Webb hopefully will launch this year. We've been waiting, well, my professional lifetime uh, for this telescope. It's a imaging. Uh, instruments so that we will get data we will get spectrum we've just had the first set of allocations of time to astronomers and people are very excited about the spectrographs Um, but it will take images they'll be in the infrared so it's very different from Hubble which it's sometimes described as a success to which worked in the ultraviolet and visible light Uh, James Webb is an infrared space telescope so we will see different things um, and we will see um, different places uh, like the coldest bits 
uh, of the universe, the places where stars are forming, distant galaxies, that sort of thing. But it is an imaging instrument, and we will get spectacular pictures from it, as well as all the data, which will, will be exciting. But first it has to launch, and then it has this terrifying procedure where its mirror is too big to fit in the rocket. And so after launch, the mirror has to unfold and lock into place. And if you think that's that's a precisely machined optical surface, it's got to work perfectly. Um, and so for the first month after launch, I don't think any astronomers will be capable of doing anything other than, than checking refresh on the NASA feed and making sure that all is well. So, so fingers crossed that will be the end of this year. I wonder how much when more it's actually, badly uh, beyond the Earth's atmosphere a mirror and if it gets broken. I'm not entirely sure <laughs> which scientists have, have investigated that. Um, Sarah or Sarah, I apologise, there's no H on, on and I know some people will, will say Sarah and some will be Sarah, but she has a question which is, uh, um, just in, a lot of people again always wanted to know this and, and, and it's a good question, which is where is the best place to start looking for uh, a, a telescope uh, and, and for any, and I know you may well also say binoculars are a, a good place to start in terms of trying to get something on a budget. Yeah, always start with binoculars because that gets binoculars because that gets you out under the sky. And the great thing about binoculars is you could just pick them up and and go and look. Um, really, the, the the best general advice is to contact your local astronomical society. There's a long list online, and those will be people who will know stockists in your local area, and and in normal times may let you you come and have a look. The rough rule of thumb is don't buy anything uh, that has a lens smaller than sorry, this is imperial three inches across. Um, or a mirror less than about six um, and um, pay attention to the tripod so people one way if you get a cheap telescope it's they've often saved the money uh, by the tripod if you've got a wobbly tripod you won't find anything but really talk to people who know find a, a local stockist or a, a local uh, astronomy site to tell them what you want and, and take advice that way uh eileen can i just say now i'm afraid we're not going to uh experiment question but because helen's on every single week we will definitely find time sometime in january <laughs> hopefully next week uh i'm going to kind of conflate phoebe and len's question uh phoebe would like to know uh where the world is at with regard to satellite regulation legislation and len would like to know uh a discussion for amateur stargazers about how to respond to the threat of mega satellite constellations like starlink so um lucy do you do you yeah do you so I think there are important conversations we need to have now because we have legislation about what activities can be done in space that were set mostly several decades ago about peaceful use of space and how that's defined. I would say they are not fit for purpose today. And I think there's a kind of different way of framing the question. So it's not just about, you know, who owns space and what you can do with space, but a slightly different way of thinking about it is, who owns the night sky? And that's the question we need to think about now with these mega constellations. So these are constellations of thousands of satellites in orbit around the Earth to, um, for example, provide global internet coverage, which sounds really laudable. And I think, brilliant, yeah, people in every part of the world, rural areas get access to the internet, so important. And we've seen that more and more during the pandemic. But the, the, the sort of 
other side of that is that then these satellites are in fairly low orbit, say 500 kilometres up. So at certain times of the night, they will reflect sunlight and you'll see them whizzing across the sky. And I've stood in my garden and watched the Starlink satellites go over, you know, a train of them, one after the other, one after the other. So there's a lot of work now to be done around minimising the impact, finding some way of um, a compromise so that you can get the services people need, that businesses want to operate, that governments want to have in place, but you don't ruin the night sky. So the Royal Astronomical Society are looking at this. I would say um, keep the conversation up, speak to people about it, raise awareness of the fact that this is coming and, in fact, it's already here. Um, and I would like it to be that a company who does pollute the night sky in that way feels a reputational damage for polluting our night sky. So there's different angles. There's legislation that needs to come in and there's a kind of public awareness that means, well, we will support companies who do the right thing by keeping the night sky open for everyone. Thank you, Lucy. Chris, can I ask you a different question, different question just, just because I'm, I want to try and get through all of them. Uh, someone wants to know about uh, this week's triple conjunction. Uh, this is Jupiter, Saturn and Mercury, Saturn and Mercury I think, low uh, in the west just after sunset. Be beautiful, but it's very low down. So you need to be high up with a clear horizon uh, just after uh, sunset and look for Jupiter and Saturn. And then if you're sure the sun is below the horizon, use binoculars to look for Mercury. But don't get your binoculars out until you're sure the sun is out the way. Uh, question. Darren would like to know if you had the money for only one trip, Enceladus or Titan? Oh, they're both around Saturn. You could go to both. <laughs> Lucy? Um, I would say Titan because that was really the first time I realised a moon of another planet was more like an Earth itself. So I'll go for Titan. And final question. Graham Stewart would like to uh, I read that the rotation period of the sun is about 24 Earth days at the equator, but a much longer 38 days at the poles. Is this correct? And if so, can you explain it? It is correct. The sun, so is, the sun is fluid. It's a gas. It's not a solid object. So it's not constrained to all rotate as a solid body. The gas at the equator whips around much faster than the gas at the poles. Um, and that means it stirs up the magnetic field. See, I get magnetism in every time I can. And that leads to lots of interesting um, effects. So it's because it's a fluid. There's a much longer answer behind that, but maybe I don't have time for that today. But it is because the sun is a fluid that it's, it's free to rotate more quickly at the equator than at the poles. Thank you so much. Uh, Chris, I know you're doing a talk uh, tomorrow at seven o'clock uh, based at the kind of Armagh uh, Observatory. Uh, so um, and people just go to armagh.space. Uh, is that right? That's it. Yeah. So, so Chris, tomorrow night at seven o'clock, I should also say at 4.30 tomorrow on Radio 4, uh, there's the first of the new Infinite Monkey Cages. Uh, it is a very rude show about flies i have no idea how rude the 430 version is going to be i would very much suggest you go and listen to the bbc sounds podcast version slightly longer version uh, but it was far more lurid uh, than we uh, imagined i'll also mention it quickly again i've on on tuesday night at eight o'clock i'm going to be doing a talk about ghost death and physics two of my major uh, texts i'll be using are the osborne guide to the supernatural world which will be popping up in that and uh, also john c Lilly, uh, who did a lot of experimentation with uh, dolphin communication for some reason i've worked out how to get that in there as well that's eight o'clock on uh, on tuesday night and at 2 p.m uh, on tuesday afternoon if you're a patreon supporter uh then uh i'll be talking to nicole stott uh for a new series so you can watch the the live conversation uh about that uh lucy is there anything you would like to mention coming up 
Um, no, I, no, I don't have anything on my on my checklist to to mention. Just uh, yeah, keep up to date with the news. Get out and just ha have a look at the night sky. Yeah, nothing to plug. <laughs> and we should match sky at night is uh, January seventeenth this month as well. Um, it is. Helen, anything you would like to mention before we go? Uh, don't think so. Yep. Great. No, Everyone's happy. Good. This is, uh, there'll also be a new uh, episode of uh, Uncanny Hour is uh, is coming up when we're doing Deathline, the cannibal classic with Donald Pleasance and Christopher Lee and, and uh, various others with uh, Reese Shearsmith and Gary Sherman, the director of that film. Uh, that will be available for you on Friday as well for uh, Patreon supporters. And uh, have, have a great week. And as I said, we're going to try and do another COVID-19 one. Uh, do look back if you get the chance to the, the conversation. Uh, we have with uh, with Kevin Fong and others uh, back in December. Thank you very much to our producer Trent Burton, and uh, hopefully we'll next week. By the way, I think we're going to be doing the natural world. We're going to be what you can find in nature at the moment if you're going out for walks, stuff like that. Uh, I'm not entirely sure what guests we're going to have, but start getting your nature questions ready. Bye bye. Thank you very much for listening. Support us at patreon.com slash Cosmic Shambles. Check out all the other stuff over at CosmicShambles.com. Follow us on Twitter at Cosmic Shambles or Cosmic Shambles Network on Instagram and Facebook. Bye for now. This podcast is part of the Cosmic Shambles Network.